for those joining us remotely, I uh, acknowledge the traditional owners of the country in which you are on and pay my respects to their elders past, present, and future. Now, welcome to the US Study Center's events. Uh, GP debate breakdown, what just happened? Now, before I get started, can I just get a raise of hands? Did anyone get to watch it? Raise your hands if you got to, oh, fantastic. So glad to hear what, uh, what you call in Australia, the, the tragics among us who, who, who love uh, US politics. Um, I'm really excited to be joined today by my three colleagues to my right uh, to uh, discuss this. So first I have Guarana Gurdjic, who is jointly appointed senior lecturer at the Department of Government and International Relations and at the US Study Center at UCID. I have Victoria Cooper, who's a research editor at the US Study Center. And then I have at the end there, David Smith, who is a jointly appointed associate professor in American politics and foreign policy at the US Study Center and the School of Social and Political Sciences at UCID. I do know their names. I just can never remember it. <laughs> those titles in, in entirely. Um, but let's let's talk about what just happened. And um, for for uh, it, to, to get started, I'll just say that this was an event. This debate was, as the moderators say, uh, an event that did not have the elephant in the room. Donald Trump was not there. Um, Trump right now enjoys fifty percent of ratings amongst Republicans across the country. Um, and that number has remained pretty steady across four indictments. And just for those keeping uh, track at home, no U.S. president has ever been indicted like this. No former U.S. president has ever been indicted like this. Um, now, Trump's lead over Ron DeSantis, the one guy who was on the stage tonight, uh, is 37 points. And that's twice as large as any front runner who has ever gone on to lose a party nomination at this stage. So no candidate has ever had a margin like this. It's been more than 20 years since a Republican even had this big of a lead, this, consistent, this consistently in an open primary. And you'll, you'll hear from some of the, uh, they call it the spin room, which is where the, uh, after the debate, they, the uh, sort of political team of each of the candidates will go out and, and spin what just happened. Uh, their debate was better, or their, their candidate was better. But you'll hear from some in the spin room, you'll hear from the campaigns, oh, uh, we're, we're just like McGovern in 1972, Jimmy Carter in 76, and some even say Barack Obama in 08. Still, those numbers were nowhere near as bad as they are for DeSantis. He's the second closest, and he still has a long way to go. And it'd be, we've said this a lot, and we'll say it again, unprecedented for someone like DeSantis to come back, or anyone to come back. Um, but like I said, we're not just here to talk about Trump. Um, we're, we're talking about what happened today. Um, you'll see when you watch this, as, as, as a number of you saw, maybe when you, after the debate took place, you'll hear a lot of like, the, what are the key takeaways? What just happened? Who won? We're gonna get to that. But I wanna first start with asking something that I think is really important to understand who won and why you say who won. And that's the expectations. So I'd love to hear, maybe we can just go down the line and start. What were your expectations going into today's uh, GOP debate? Well, I think that for a lot of uh, US uh, debate watchers, the, the kind of uh, idea that there would be a pile on, on whoever is in the lead. Uh, and we, obviously, as you said, the main guy wasn't there. Uh, the expectations were that everyone was going to go after DeSantis, but that really didn't happen. And what we saw was uh, really 
more or less everyone who was sort of awake, uh, and there were some who were asleep, I think, uh, also at the sort of further stand, uh, ends of, the, of, of that stage that uh, really piled on, on Vivek Ramaswamy, which tells us something about uh, the sort of surge that he's had as of late as uh, almost this kind of Trump surrogate voice. So uh, that was somewhat unexpected. Uh, DeSantis was much more, I wouldn't say subdued. We actually had this little conversation about how he uh, can't be subdued because he tends to scream every time he opens his mouth. But basically, uh, this idea that everyone uh, would go after DeSantis simply didn't materialize. And uh, we, we saw different uh, attacks on uh, uh, Ramaswamy, uh, which signaled that uh, obviously for uh, uh, quite a few of them, uh, he's seen as, as someone uh, to uh, watch out for, at least in this sort of early, early stage. But obviously, you know, it's uh, the first one of these uh, rodeos, so uh, let's let's not get carried away. There have been plenty of these uh, kinds of candidates, and then they just peter out. Victoria, what are your expectations? My expectations going in. It is always difficult to have expectations going in when these things are determined by Trump. Ultimately, uh, even though he didn't rock up, I had the expectation that the debate would primarily be about him, and I think in many ways it possibly was. And I think the counter-programming that he launched on X, I saw a statistic to say that 74 million people watched that interview on X, which is formerly known as Twitter. Although the way that that's calculated is that if you scroll past and watch for more than about two seconds, that counts as a view. So it's actually quite difficult to know how Trump's uh, media consumption or occupation really dominated above the others or if it dominated at all. Uh, but nonetheless, even in his absence, uh, that debate seemed to be predominantly about Trump and that basically parallels with my expectations for today. David? I didn't have any expectations. <laughs> and I was watching it out of professional obligation. But Thank I, you. We really appreciate it. I was excited to see what Doug Burgum and Asa Hutchinson actually looked like. Because I'd never seen them before. But it mm -hmm. was fascinating that those two in particular, as well as several others who had had to expend a lot of effort to get to the stage, I mean, Doug Burgum literally had to hand out gift cards in order to solicit the donations that were required to get to the threshold of number of donors. You know, what were they going to do with this tremendous opportunity once they got there? And the answer in most cases was nothing. Um, they went to Doug Burgum every time they needed to calm the rest of them down, uh, you know, to, to ask him about it. Asa Hutchinson who was positioning himself as the most fervent critic of Trump um, just came across as the driest possible pre-2008 kind, of, uh, uh, kind of candidate. So, I mean, I won't say it was disappointing because, as I say, I didn't actually have any expectations um, going into it. But, yeah, that's what I got out of it. Now, all right, so I got the expectations going into it. What were the top takeaways? I don't think it was Hutchinson. <laughs> that was your top takeaway from you. As, as a political nerd, I understand that that's something interesting. But what were actually your takeaways that you think will be, that will leave this, uh, will stay with us after this event, after this debate? We'll just start with Dave and work our way back down. Um, it, it looks as though Ramaswamy has realized there is no way that either he or anyone else is beating Trump. What they've got is the actuarial possibility that Trump won't make it to the election. 
Um, uh, find what you mean by actuarial. As in, at his age, in his condition, there's a certain possibility he'll die, uh, which I think is more likely than indictments actually taking him out of the race. Robert Tucker Carlson is peddling the idea that he'll be murdered as well. Yeah. Sort of. <laughs> I mean, nature might murder him. Um, <laughs> Big mess. But, uh, uh, no, it's, it's incredibly difficult to murder anyone with Secret Service protection. Um, but it, the indictments, especially as I think the most serious ones probably won't be tried until um, after the election, um, I don't think the indictments are going to take him out of the race, but there is a possibility that he won't make it for, for health reasons. Um, even if that's a 2% possibility or something, that's probably better at this point than the possibility of uh, someone beating him. And so Ramaswamy is positioning himself as if Trump doesn't make it, I'm I'm the one. Uh, I'm I'm the next in line, which is probably the best calculated strategy that anyone has. Um, I find him deeply annoying, but there'll be a lot of people uh, who to whom he really appeals. He does um, quite a good impression of Trump in a lot of ways. He also, if you know what to look for, is kind of steeped in the thought of what's often known as the new right. Uh, which is these all these sort of young uh, Peter Thiel-backed um, people with, uh, I mean, he's he's not on the Christian integralist side of it, but uh, the, these, this particular kind of brand of conservative thought, he set up a lot of flares um, about that. So my overall impression is um, Ramaswamy was on a position, was on a mission to position himself as if Trump doesn't make it, uh, I'm the one, not DeSantis, and I think he probably succeeded. Mm. Sorry. I mean, my key takeaway has more about how to run a debate in that if you want to have a gotcha question, you just ask people to raise their hand. That for me was the most hilarious part of the debate was all of a sudden raise your hand if you believe climate change is real. Mm. And then also the hesitation of people kind of sort of gesturing instead of raising hands. Uh, but no, in all seriousness, my uh, key takeaway is that Trump's dominance just persists. I mean, like, it's really hard to watch these debates without Trump dominating and in this instance and it was one of those occasions where it was a raising of hands um six out of eight of the uh, candidates on stage said that they would support uh, a, nom a nominee who had uh, been convicted of crimes so even when david's saying you know it might be an actuarial factor that takes out donald trump uh, if it is a criminal indictment that doesn't seem to knock out any support from even among the candidates that are vying for his top spot um, the loyalty to Trump, even with people that have been critical of him, including Nikki Haley, um, uh, you know, that really resonated or stood out for me. Um, and I mean, that also is parallels a lot with public opinion. 71% of primary voters in uh, the Republican Party believe that Trump has not committed any serious crimes. So uh, it seems like Trump dominates even when he's absent and that these candidates even if they're trying for this top spot, are going to need to play their cards really uh, strategically in terms of how they position themselves with respect to the former president and uh, these allegations that he faces, which of course will also saturate the media in the coming months, so. Well, my takeaway would be um, one that follows actually from both what David and, and Victoria were saying um, in uh, um, this regard. Um, I still don't necessarily have a clear answer as to what the Republican Party mainstream is because um, it's clear that the first three, the, the top uh, uh, sort of contenders are uh, the kind of America firsters uh, or the kind of MAGA uh, and, and kind of MAGA 2.0, 3.0 or whatever 
uh, uh, kind of variant you want. But then uh, what David alluded to, uh, some of these candidates who um, seemingly belong more to the Republican Party of you know, Reagan or uh, at least on some of the foreign policy stances, and I know we'll talk about that later, but even on uh, some of the domestic policy, uh, Nikki Haley uh, sort of trying to establish herself as a fiscal conservative and pointing fingers at uh, some of the contenders who are more on that side um, is, is something that's quite interesting. And there uh, was one question around uh, the way that uh, the candidates see America and uh, its national identity at the moment. Uh, this was a very telling moment because um, this is where Ramaswamy uh, told Pence, it's not morning in America, right? Alluding to, uh, to, to Reagan's campaign uh, in the 80s, uh, basically continuing with this line that Trump had in his inaugural uh, around this being the era of American carnage, basically. Um, so um, it's, it's still quite unclear because uh, Again, from the the kind of the front runners, it seems to be this message. But then, who are these candidates trying to appeal to? And there are different sort of theories that we could probably um, hash out uh, later on uh, in terms of whether this is a strategy for the general uh, election, whether this is something that they are thinking about when you know uh, uh, big donors say enough, or, or you know. But again, is this going to work we saw that money doesn't necessarily buy you uh, that ticket as it was very clear in 16 and 20 so um it, it's uh, still very much the the kind of uh, question that that uh, um, in my mind isn't resolved and I don't think it's going to be resolved in this election cycle but you know just uh, to have people like Tim Scott or or Pence uh, sort of putting forward this this sort of message or even you know Christie and, and Haley um, it's, it's quite interesting that uh, it is such a stark con contrast to, to MAGA, but it's clear that in terms of that realignment, we have moved much further to the right. Yeah, I think uh, I know the answer to this, but I wanted to ask David, um, did we watch political history being made tonight? Mm -hmm. But what I guess to, to change that is, could you maybe define when there has been a debate in the past, what made it political history? Is it just the viral moment? Are they all just trying to score that viral moment? Is it, is it Kamala Harris going after Biden talking about being a young girl? Is it Chris Christie going after Marco Rubio saying that he's robotic? What, what, what would have made it political history if it wasn't political history tonight? I've got to admit, I'd forgotten both of those moments. <laughs> and it's very rare that debates actually have a significant impact on the race, especially primary debates. These primary debates have only been going on a regular basis in the Republican Party since 1980 and in the Democratic Party since 1983. Notably, the very first uh, of these Republican debates, Ronald Reagan, who was the prohibitive frontrunner, skipped it. He actually did then have a subsequent debate in New Hampshire, which was a bizarre event. Reagan paid for it out of his campaign funds and George H.W. Bush turned up on the assumption that it would just be him and Reagan, but Reagan had actually invited all of the other candidates as well, people like Bill Crane and Bob Dole. And Bush refused to debate until they left the stage. Um, but then Reagan was explaining why he'd invited them. The moderator from the Nashua Telegraph in New Hampshire tried to turn off his microphone, to which Reagan responded, 
I paid for this microphone. <laughs> that's probably the most memorable moment that's ever occurred <laughs> um, in a primary debate, utterly inconsequential. Um, I think that with so many viral moments happening all the time in so many different contexts, it's even harder now for anyone to actually make that much headway in, in a debate. Now, I do think that Ramaswamy, who would have been not the least known person on the stage, that would be one of the governors who I've already forgotten about, um, but he was certainly, of the sort of plausible alternatives, he was probably coming from the, the lowest base. And he definitely used that as an opportunity to increase his profile, increase his recognition, increase his name recognition, uh, probably made a few friends, probably made a few enemies as well. The, uh, the Fox commentators who were on during the breaks were talking about how they were scrolling through right-wing Twitter and how polarizing he was being which is for someone in his position, that's probably the, the uh, you know, the best thing that he can be. So, I, and I don't think that there's a single uh, moment from Ramaswamy, it was just the whole performance. One of the things that he clearly learned from Trump was that uh, if everybody's attacking you throughout the, uh, you know, throughout the debate, that basically shows that you're winning the debate. Roger Ailes, who for all his flaws, was, had a very good understanding of how television worked, used to say about debates, you, you know who's winning if you turn the sound off. Uh, if you turn the sound off and look at what's happening. And for a lot of the debate, uh, if you'd done that, you basically would have seen people turning to Ramaswamy and would appear to be talking to him and Ramaswamy talking back at them. He was even using some of Trump's kind of uh, hand gestures. He wasn't as um, controlling of all of this as, uh, as, as Trump was. I remember back in uh, 2015 where Trump would just be there in the middle of the stage, like visibly taller than all of the other candidates, which was um, another advantage. And he wouldn't even turn around to face the other candidates. So Ramaswamy didn't quite have that level of uh, control. But for someone doing this for the first time, who was coming from a fairly low sort of base of recognition um, uh, before that, he would have, it, yeah, as I say, there's not a single um, moment that was happening, but in terms of how historically people have benefited from these debates, he definitely would have uh, benefited the most. One of the uh, sort of takeaways that I've seen a lot of people talk about is uh, the Ramaswamy Nikki Haley exchange on foreign policy, where she said it showed that he was a novice. Um, I, I guess it, it was some people would say that it was not the most policy uh, heavy discussion that we've ever seen, um, but. Of the U.S. foreign policy discussion that was there, what, what what were the takeaways there, and how are U.S. allies watching it? Maybe especially given your expertise in Europe, would love to hear. Do you think this has an impact on them? Because we all hear constantly in our work when we're not doing politics, we're talking about foreign policy, and people are always asking, "Is does the U.S. have staying power, or is that that circus what the U.S. presidency is about to become?" Yes, that's a great set of questions, and, and I'll try to be brief here. Um, so Sorry, I should clarify, I don't have a bell like I did today, <laughs> and I really don't want to have to heck your, or, or lecture the, uh, the audience like they did at the Fox News debate as well. But my mom <laughs> might get a bit rowdy, but we'll see. Um, so on foreign policy, it's clear that Ukraine is uh, this issue that I already mentioned uh, is, is basically uh, uh, one of the kind of testing grounds of 
uh, the, the kind of uh, infighting that we see within the party. And um, I would look at it um, as a sort of um, sparring among basically three factions where we saw the two in, in the debate really, really being uh, kind of dominant and going after one another. What I mean here is that one is certainly uh, led by Trump and, and his ilk, uh, and here Ramaswamy very much seized on that. This is the America first idea, right? That basically what uh, Ramaswamy said in one of these in interviews, why would we care about these thugs somewhere, you know, in Europe fighting it out? This is a, what he called the territorial dispute and all that. Um, so uh, um, in, in that sense, um, I, I would say that there is a kind of stream of, of uh, the, the new Republican Party's kind of uh, isolationist and unilateralist uh, uh, reflex that, that speaks to, to that idea that Ukraine is uh, none of US's uh, problems, right? And that it should stay out. Then there is um, kind of uh, one group that is, is not as, or wasn't as well articulated or didn't come exactly through to the, to the debate, but uh, it's definitely there, which is not necessarily America first, but Indopac first. These are people who would say, uh, we have to keep eyes on the prize. The prize is China, forget about Russia. This is a distraction. Why are we wasting all of this time? And this is actually the ground that um, DeSantis fell back on saying first that he wouldn't want to do anything about Ukraine, but then kind of walked back and said, no, no, I would do more about China. This is what matters. And then we have, after these America Firsters, Indo-Pak Firsters, there are these, I would say maybe neo-Reaganites basically, because they remind me the most in terms of the, the sort of rhetoric and in terms of their attitude towards uh, uh, Russia. Um, it's very reminiscent of, of uh, um, Ronald Reagan, um, not quite giving the evil empire speech, but basically uh, calling uh, Putin um, uh, sort of, you know, all, all the kind of names that probably um, Reagan would subscribe to. And this is the tag that Haley has taken, that Christie has taken, uh, um, that Pence has taken for sure. The latter two obviously were uh, in Kyiv recently uh, meeting with Zelensky. And, and really what I think we are seeing now is just the beginning of this politicization of Ukraine uh, even further going into uh, the election year, which is uh, obviously going to be quite perilous because uh, next year is going to be all about the sort of who is winning, who is losing. We are looking at this in the context of not just presidential, but also congressional elections. And the more that this line gets Played, you know, why aren't we diverting all this money uh, to the southern uh, border or, you know, for anything else? Uh, why are we spending billions when the counteroffensive is not going great? This is potentially spelling trouble uh, going into, into next year, uh, despite the fact that so far in terms of even, you know, congressional leadership uh, that was very, you know, Kind of going, uh, uh, making making these uh, sort of very very big statements around how they are going to roll back Biden's policies and all that. And I 
detail that to to approving them. But obviously, uh, there are there are new sort of requests that are uh, looming, and obviously, what we see is Ukraine uh, is not done yet. So that's that's on the side of what's happening in the Republican Party now. Uh, what do Europeans think? They were asleep, obviously, when uh, the debate was happening, so not many probably stayed up uh, to watch. But um, we. <laughs> So if we just stay on the matter of Ukraine and, and the, the sort of tectonic shifts that have happened in Europe, I think we are doing still the the sort of, you know, the more things change, the more they sort of stay the same. Um, because yes, obviously we've seen now in a lot of uh, uh, European countries, this has provoked uh, a major sort of shifts in, in the way that they uh, think about their own defense, the, in the way that they position themselves uh, towards Russia. There's no doubt about it, right? Uh, I spent just the past half a year in Germany. They've had this Titan Vende, right? The major sea change of their foreign and security policy uh, pledged that they will meet the 2% and not just percent of the uh, GDP spending on, on defense, but make that a floor and, and kind of be more ambitious. And yet again, we read now reports that Schultz is kind of backtracking on some of that, or they're saying, oh, we are going to average it over a couple, next couple of years. It's not quite clear um, that we are going to reach it immediately, but we are really, you know, uh, going to do that at some point. And the other point there, uh, you know, so it's the standard European kind of bread and guns sort of debate, but there is also this other thing, which is now that we've seen in, in terms of the uh, relief and, and all the different uh, kind of manifestations of aid that have been channeled to Ukraine, uh, this has been an effort that was led by the United States, even though um, I have to say European Union has been actually the main uh, provider of, for instance, uh, weapons and, and material um, to the European peace facility, but nonetheless, uh, US is seen really as that first mover, right? So Germans wouldn't even send the tanks unless uh, Americans did and, and so on. So Europeans are again doing the same old thing, which is there's a moment of crisis and then they say, it's the hour of Europe, and then in five minutes, it's actually the hour of the United States. We <laughs> need help, right? And and uh, they've done that already. You know, in the '90s with the Balkan crisis, uh, they've uh, obviously some of them uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, joined in uh, on these various coalitions when it comes to Greater Middle East uh, interventions of 2000s, and and uh, um, now we are again seeing that not a lot has changed. I, I want to be optimistic, but we do see. Uh, the, the main problem being that that we are talking about with reflexes um, <laughs> have to have to be on guard um, when I talk about defense things. Um, but um, uh, really what we are seeing is, is uh, them falling uh, time and time again into, into the, the same issue, which is um, that, you know, uh, matters of security policy of defense policy are so intimately tied to sovereignty. And even though Europeans mostly have these bonsai armies, you know, they're very cute, um, but very small, and uh, they just don't want to integrate, right? And that's the main problem, because you can't, in a serious fashion, be uh, supplying Ukraine with, you know, a couple of uh, kind of machine guns here, you know, several boots there. It, it just doesn't work like that if, if you want to be serious. Um, I should, at this point, flag that we actually, at the U.S. Air Center, just published this week an excellent guide to all of these Republican candidates. It's on our website, usc.edu.au, done by the two authors actually in this audience. And they did an excellent job, not only detailing where they stand on uh, foreign policy, but also where they stand on Australia and their comments on Australia. So that's Ava and Sam in the back there. 
And I highly recommend uh, taking a look at it to, to see, again, not just US foreign policy, but also Asia and Australia as well. Now, speaking of Australia, um, Victoria, you and I have done some, some polling work together on US and Australian attitudes on, on a, a range of, of issues. But I would, I would love your, your take on, after talking about Europe, what is the Australian takeaway from this? Or what, Australia was not mentioned. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? Um, but Australia is, in, in my view, and I think a lot of people agree with me, discussed in DC more than ever in the seven years of the US alliance. And you know, we're now firmly in the what happens if Trump wins uh, debate after a couple of years of, of a break from that. <laughs> So what, what do you think is the Australian takeaway from this? What, what should, what did Australia take away? What should Australia take away? That's a really good question. I think, I mean, so few Australians I imagine actually watch this debate. We um, have some in, in the room. <laughs> thank you all for being among the minority of Australians that probably watch this debate. But I would say that Australians watch US politics like sport and perhaps the distance of the Pacific Ocean makes that a lot less painful for us than it does for our American friends. Um, but, you know, I don't think the debate itself will alter Australia's opinion on what's going on in the US. If anything, it just pulled back the curtain on what we already knew was happening and probably gave us a few more quotes to attribute to some of these people. Um, we saw, you know, despite Australians thinking that or watching the debate like sport or being unlikely to watch it all, um, Australians do recognise that what happens in the US impacts them. Um, we saw even last year, so I've actually got our polling report with us, which we did just before the midterm elections last year uh, in September. Um, we saw just before those midterm elections that a, a very, very small minority of Australians said that the midterm elections weren't going to affect them at all. And these are just midterm elections, you know, there's the elections of governors and I think a third of Senate seats and um, a number of House seats as well. Um, so quite small elections by comparison to the general election, you know, they're not electing the executive yet still Australians recognize that those elections were important to them. Um, and that's because what happens in America does impact Australia. And that's why this center exists is that we're trying to understand better how US domestic politics in particular actually impacts us and our foreign policy. And at this stage, I would probably raise that um, what it does do in these debates, and if they showcase a certain side of politics that Australians don't necessarily resonate with or don't understand or they don't like, um, I think, you know, it, it's, it's concerning for Australians in terms of, uh, I think it prompts a, a, an evaluation of what Australia's relationship with the US is. And if we're talking about an unbreakable alliance, what exactly it is that would break the alliance. Now, with that said, that is a complete minority perspective in Australia in that Australians are very good at separating that uh, the US-Australian relationship sits above the fray of what we see in US domestic politics. So while we see perhaps there's some um, political trends that, uh, you know, gets Australians back up, and we've seen that, you know, our polling uh, presented that a plurality of Australians, in fact, more Australians than Americans, are very concerned about Congress's ability to do its job, misinformation, the way democracy is working in the United States, the lack of compromise between Republicans and Democrats, the president's ability to do their job, potential political violence in the US and uh, the US reputation abroad. Australians are more likely to say that they're very concerned about those things than Americans are. So Australians are very, very concerned about what happens in US domestic politics. Um, and that's partly, I think, because there's a concern in Australia that we would import some of the less desirable Americanized cultural trends that we don't necessarily want to see here. 
Um, we're concerned about things like uh, COVID conspiracies, like uh, parents' rights and critical race theory, partly because they don't have a, a resonance with Australian culture. And so sometimes we look to the US and we panic. And we saw that even last year. I was talking about this today. We saw this last year when the Roe decision got handed down. There were protests in Australia concerned about what that would mean for our abortion rights. So Australians are very attuned to what happens in the US and what happens with US domestic politics and how that might affect us. But in terms of our foreign policy, I don't necessarily think that what happens on the, you know, in the first primary debate stage among Republicans or even in the result of this election will actually alter the fabric of how our foreign relationship stands. And especially as Jared says, amongst our elite community, Australia has never been more relevant in Washington, DC. Uh, we've never seen more people interested in Australia, more interested to see what Australians have to say about the relationship. And Australia's never had more leverage than being able, than this moment where we're able to say to the United States, well, here's what's happening in Australia and here's what, here's what our interests are in the region that you so dearly care about. So I don't necessarily think the debate's going to impact <laughs> what Australians think of the United States. I think, uh, you know, for many people, they've made up their minds about Trump and what a second term about him would mean for reference. 50% um, of Australians said that a second Trump term would be a bad thing in our polling last year, whereas 19% um, said the same of Biden. So Australians have a clear preference for a second Biden term than they do a second Trump term. Um, but I think those opinions are fairly set. And despite the unprecedentedness of events that we've seen this year, if anything, that's just solidified those opinions rather than changed any minds. One, one question I had when I was looking at um, the debate tonight and seeing how many were on the stage was, um, it reminded me of 2016, and we had all those candidates on, on the debate stage. And um, the New Hampshire um, governor, uh, Sununu, came out with an op-ed recently saying, the number one way to defeat Trump, I should clarify, Sununu is a Republican governor of a um, not super red state, um, and who is, uh, pretty openly anti-Trump. And um, he came out with an op-ed saying the number one way to defeat Trump is to winnow down the number of candidates. They really just need to solidify around team candidates now. Um, I guess the question for, uh, for each of you was, are we seeing that? Do you think that we're seeing now the same 2016 all over again? Is that, is that dynamic um, something that is repeating itself? Do, do you expect um, any of the candidates to bow out or do you expect any of the candidates to change? Because we saw and on the Democratic side, they really coalesced around Biden pretty quickly in 2020. I think a lot of them remember the Jimmy Carter uh, incident where he, um, he basically, Ted Kennedy ran against him in, what is this, 1976? Is that right, I think? And, um, he, and the sort of conventional wisdom amongst Democrats, that the, the takeaway lesson was that he weakened Carter and Carter went on to lose to Ronald Reagan. Um, is there any sort of lesson learned from 2016 amongst Republicans, or are we just repeating 2016 all over again? Either any of you. Start with David. I, I don't think that the priority for a lot of these candidates actually is beating Trump. Uh, uh, and um, I think there will be some winnowing of the field. Like, I don't particularly expect to see Doug Bergen again. Uh, but even if there was just one candidate to emerge, I don't think that they would pose a serious challenge to Trump. Even though there's plenty of polling saying you know, nearly half, something more than half of Republicans would like to see somebody else, would be open to seeing 
somebody else. I think this is the most unpopular election of all time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and not to mention the three quarters of Americans who don't want to see a Biden-Trump contest. When you ask those questions in polls, though, people are often imagining an alternative that is not actually there. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would imagine that for a lot of those Republicans who don't want to see Trump, the actual alternative that they want to see is not there. Uh, you know, God knows what it is, but it's uh, it's not there. Same for um, same for Democrats who don't want to see Biden. Same for people who don't want to see a Biden-Trump race. The, the alternative could be almost anything, but uh, posing concrete alternatives, you do end up in a situation where those are going to be the uh, are likely to be the two candidates. So. And certainly, if there was any chance of um, a single candidate emerging, I don't think that it became clear tonight uh, anyway. So. I mean, it, it takes a special kind of person, right, to, to think, oh, I could be the president of the United States, right? There, you need to have a bit of that ego. And I think then for some of these people so early on still, right, to uh, say, oh, you know, it actually it's not going to work out. They probably are more likely to think, no, I need to do this more because at the next one or maybe the one after, I'm really going to shine. That's going to be my moment. I still just haven't shown them. Um, there is going to be a bit of winnowing because uh, of the rules, right? They need to I think it's actually, David, to your great sadness, Isaac Hutchinson that I saw wouldn't qualify for the next one yet. Uh, um, so I think you're stuck with Doug Bergen for at least one more <laughs> in September. But I, I really uh, uh, think that some of this uh, comes down to just the politics of personality uh, rather than these sort of calcs that they might be doing. But you're absolutely right. I, I uh, think that the more that uh, we, we see the kind of dissipating uh, uh, support for for some of these kind of uh, candidates that that stand no chance there's going to be very uh hard case for anyone who might have some chance right uh, against trump to really uh, try to consolidate and, and build on that and some of that again has to do with this uh, um previous point on who that candidate would be is it really going to be a kind of maga uh, a duel, or is it going to be Trump versus someone from this sort of neo-Reaganite uh, morning in America and and uh, uh, similar sort of uh, uh, wing, which again, you you really, I mean, those people are certainly questioning themselves these days, you know, what do they do with their four or 5%, but uh, they are still staying in the race. And I heard a lot actually you know, um, in terms of these workshops, uh, Tim Scott's name uh, uh, seems to uh, come out quite often. And yeah. he was really uh, one of these more wallflowery uh, um, uh, participants of the debate. Um, but they're saying that as long as he just sustains that uh, funding that he has, and apparently his coffers are pretty full, um, that he, he uh, will do just fine. So. I don't know how much of these historical analogies you know, are, are helpful or not, but certainly at this point, the fact that the field is quite wide is uh, going into Trump's advantage. Yeah, I um, heard that uh, if there is a, a, a secret vote for uh, amongst Republicans in DC for president, I think Tim Scott would, uh, would win it. And um, now on to you, Victoria, I don't wanna remind myself how old I am, how, old you, <laughs> how young you were in 2016, mm. but 
Your thoughts on whether we're just repeating history? Yeah, my thoughts on whether we're repeating history. I mean, I think to build off what the two of you have said, I think, you know, it's not only popularity that's going to winnow down the field, it's also imperatives like how much money uh, these candidates have. And for people like Ron DeSantis, that actually presents a little bit of a problem because as uh, the internet has shown us, he likes to fly around in private jets to Iowa when he's doing his early state, um, you know, electioneering um, and also likes to pay people to go door knocking instead of recruiting volunteers. Uh, so he's swiftly running out of money, which is presenting a huge issue to his campaign and also presenting an issue in terms of uh, big dollar people, people like Glenn Youngkin, who are, you know, very popular Republican governors in states like Virginia, who might otherwise sponsor uh, leading candidates. And that's a, a big issue for people like um, DeSantis. I think as well, um, as you guys were saying, is, is, you know, if it's not Trump as the front runner, it's a non-Trump within this pool. Is it someone that looks like Trump or is it someone that doesn't? And what are the sort of policy issues that people are, or not even policy issues that people are using to differentiate themselves from the other candidates? And we saw elements of that today, but in terms of what resonates the most with early voters, it's very unclear. So Nikki Haley, for example, spoke uh, at length about how she's a woman and how that's her point of difference, because otherwise she looks quite similar to Tim Scott, who could have talked about how he is the only uh, black se uh, senator at the moment. Um, and the first senator to be black senator to be elected for South Carolina since Reconstruction. You know, he could have talked about those points. That's his point of difference. Uh, Ramaswamy talks about how he's an outsider. Uh, Mike Pence talks about how he's experienced and he's been in the West Wing. They're pointing to very small points of difference. But at the end of the day, a lot of their campaigns are very, very similar. And yet they're pointing to those points of difference instead of coalescing around a single candidate. And in terms of money as well, if I want to go back to that point, I mean, Doug Bergen, he you know, was paying people $20 to give a $1 donation so that he could qualify. He's got a lot of money. He's, I think he will stick around, partly because he is very empowered. And he says, you know, I'm an underdog. I've been underestimated my whole life. I come from a town of 300 people. Uh, and as Gorana was saying, in terms of ego, someone like that isn't about to bow out. They'll probably just dosh out more cash until that runs out. He tore his Achilles tendon hours before the debate and rocked up on crutches. Hilariously, in a stark point of contrast to talk about young versus old, um, Vivek Ramaswamy did this big campaign playing basketball with his shirt off about a week ago, went viral, very exciting for Ramaswamy's internet followers. Doug Bergen played basketball, tore his Achilles tendon. <laughs> Bit of difference. Um, but as I say, there are some points of, uh, you know, some other imperatives other than just popularity that might winnow down this field. And they don't seem likely to cooperate with one another to take on Trump. Um, at this stage in the game. Now, we have two official debates scheduled. Um, it was today's and then September 27 is the next um, debate. And that's um, going to be exceedingly different because instead of Fox News hosting it, Fox News Business Channel is hosting it. <laughs> Huge difference there. And, um, but yeah, so what can I, can I just go down the line? What do you expect before that debate, ahead of that debate? And maybe what do you expect at that debate, um, what, what do you what do you see coming? We can start with David, then work our way down. Um, I think that my no expectations strategy is going to be the uh, yeah the best one again. Um, I mean, in terms of Fox News hosting it, they were trying to reestablish themselves as a serious news organization with this, so they had their serious news anchors going. They actually asked some questions that I think did qualify as difficult 
not for a normal person, but for some of those candidates, such as, do you think that climate change is real? Do you believe? Yeah, do you believe? As if it's a matter of a belief. climate change is real. It was interesting the way that they began this by showing this uh, clip of this um, song that has very rapidly risen up the billboard charts, oh Rich Men, North of Richmond. Um, of course, being Fox News, they had to explain that North of Richmond is Washington. That's what the song's about. Um, but it was kind of a bizarre framing for the whole thing. Like, we don't even trust our candidates to actually have the first word. Uh, let's instead uh, listen, to the, listen to this song that is very popular among our audience. Um, so I don't know how, uh, how Fox Business is going to do it uh, differently. It was about the mix of moderation and total lack of moderation that I would have expected, uh, you know, um, uh, for a debate like this. And, yeah, so, okay, Asa Hutchinson might not be there um, the second time around. I think that the, what happened in, you know, Ronald Reagan did decide to get into the second debate and decided to pay for the second debate. I don't think that anything that happened in the first debate is going to induce Trump to get mm -hmm. into the second debate because what he might have been worried about was that he would get attacked and wouldn't be there to defend himself. That was absolutely no problem for him at all. He got attacked in the most wet lettuce kind of <laughs> uh, manner. Um, they, you know, they, and, and when the question was served up about his indictments, they, uh, with the exception of, uh, of Christie, they real, and, and Hutchinson's pre-prepared speech, they really refused to actually go after him on that. So he's not going to feel that he's uh, missing anything by, or disadvantaging himself by staying out that debate. I think he clarified I'm going to miss all the debates, I think he said on Truth Social. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, he, he, both of them for now. Yes, and, and as we know, he's a man of his word. But, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't think he'll have any incentive to, right. uh, to get back into the debates. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I think the thing I love about these debates is that they turn into moments. I think we were talking about that a little bit earlier, about how they turn into, like, little clips that go viral and, like, the little ways that people spar goes viral and people calling Vivek Ramaswamy amateur hour goes viral, like all these kind of moments. And I'm imagining that these moments will fizzle out before the next debate, likely. Um, but that people like Vivek Ramaswamy who have had this sudden rise to popularity, especially in the media, especially online, they'll probably ride that wave until the next debate. Um, and it'll kind of, I, I'm interested to see the dynamic between Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy and whether that, uh, the lead that DeSantis has on Ramaswamy actually narrows. Um, I think it, it's always interesting to see how these debates go because they appeal to the entire nation. But I think the more important thing to be watching is how these candidates are actually going in these early states because that's what really matters. And that's a different conversation. The way these de debates are carried out on the national stage is appealing to a different kind of audience than they are when these candidates are going to Iowa or New Hampshire or South Carolina. Um, and so I think my expectation between the next debate is that these candidates have to use these debates as moments. They're going to be preparing uh, pre-prepared speeches. They might appear robotic. I had some really good comebacks um, or heard some really good comebacks from Chris Christie saying that Vivek Ramaswamy reminds him of Barack Obama calling himself a skinny kid with a hard name to pronounce. Um, you know, there was a hilarious clip about pudding fingers. Like all of these things are very, very fun, um, but they don't actually help you get elected. They're just fun. And so what does... So everything you're saying, it just, it reminds me of my favourite line from Blade Runner, 
where the replicant Roy says, all these moments will be lost like the spears in rain. Time to die. I think that's I think that's how a lot of the uh, the candidates are going. Yeah, exactly. And and that's the thing is, is it time to die or is it time to go to Iowa and start talking to farmers about how you grew up in a town of 300 people? You know, that, it's a different level of electioneering. And I think that's the dual challenge for these candidates is to appeal to everyone on a national stage, but then to also be strategic in their resources, in their time, and how they're going to appeal to those um, places that really, really matter. I mean, I, I don't think that necessarily the first or the second or the third debate are going to move the needle all that much. I think that they are, um, it might make a difference around margins, probably. Uh, it will be interesting to see how much of some of some of the kind of star power that now Vivek Ramaswamy has assumed, how much of it he can keep, because it's always harder to, to do that rather than to kind of rise. So uh, whether he has that uh, potential acting basically as Trump's surrogate, as I already said, and uh, as I think um, uh, David uh, really explained well in, in terms of these sort of actuarial <laughs> sort of uh, calculations. Um, I, I don't think we are going to see some major changes bar some uh, um, external sort of shocks, right, or events. Obviously, Trump is turning himself in to the Georgia uh, 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 prosecutors, right? Um, and I think the debate talk is going to end right there and then, right? Uh, probably we are now among the last people still talking about the debaters if, if it matters, right? Trump is gonna have his mugshot potentially taken and, and that will then reset the news cycle and, and that will be the top news. So, um, I think I'm also starting to get so, you know, depressive, <laughs> depressing about like none of this matters, you know, like French <laughs> existentialism. Why are we here? Um, no, we should be here. Uh, no, no, it's great that we talk about these things. But uh, in all seriousness, uh, there's just going to be, you know, another one, another one. Uh, it might be a different sort of focus. Uh, look, you asked me about foreign policy earlier. Um, end of September, early October is what we are. Uh, seeing is the sort of prediction for Ukrainian counteroffensive to kind of have the end date um, mm. because the, um, the kind of colder season, the rainier season starts then. Um, so everything basically becomes mud and we already see that trenches have been dug deep. Um, most of Eastern Ukraine is just uh, uh, under landmines anyway, um, the territory the size of Austria basically under landmines. So it's going to be very hard to, to push through that. And again, if this really becomes the foreign policy issue that dominates um, the, the debates, but not just debates, the campaign uh, moving forward. And even you know, once we uh, have the uh, clear uh, uh, nominee for each uh, of the, or obviously Biden, uh, unless something happens and, and uh, whoever it is from the Republican side, then uh, it might be uh, something that, uh, you know, we, we uh, would see kind of replay of these years that were um, more about foreign policy, not that they become necessarily dominated by foreign policy, but say, you know, your 2004s or, or um, you know, even 2012s and, and uh, similar around basically um, foreign policy and how the two parties um, 
diverge. But again, I don't think that this is necessarily going to be decided on September 27th. Um, I just think that um, maybe around things to kind of keep in mind um, are also things yeah, I think it's a great question though. Like, why are we here? Why does this matter? And I, I guess that I want to point that question to each of you. You've all covered debates in the past. You've all specific to the debate sense or a more general sense. Mm -hmm. Until the actual primaries start happening. Mm -hmm. What are what is there to watch until Iowa in January? Is what are you watching either by topic or who are you watching, which candidate? Does any of this matter? And, and what should we, you know, how, how do we uh, make this uh, sustainable in terms of surviving the next few months and in terms of all the moments that we'll have to uh, deal with? Um, I think that at the moment, it's, it's very hard to say what we should be watching based on previous experience. I, I think that we should just be embracing the fact that we're in a very, very unusual and genuinely unprecedented period uh, for which no historical analogy is going to help us, mm -hmm. right? No historical analogy is going to guide us to what to watch at the moment because we've never been in a situation where a former president has been under indictment, let alone facing 91 charges, let alone the prohibitive front runner for the, uh, for the presidency. We have never seen two candidates so extremely old, um, uh, uh, you know, running for the presidency, where there is such a high likelihood that uh, that you know one or both of them won't actually make it to the make it to the make it to the the race. Um, we uh, we're in this period of tangible exhaustion with how everything has gone. Um, over over the past eight years or so, and yet we're you know likely to be back in a rerun that nobody seems to want, but nobody seems to be able mm -hmm. to stop. So um, under these circumstances, I yeah I I am just waiting for every event to slap me in the face. Basically, mm -hmm. um, I yeah I'm not I'm not I'm abandoning expectations uh, just because they're not helpful. At this uh yeah at, at, at this point we um we've that's, my, that's my line when my kids uh get, <laughs> get to school on time yeah <laughs> i'm abandoning expectations. yeah, yeah. um uh, you know we've we've just got to um we've just got to be prepared for the fact that we have no idea what is uh what is over the horizon the thing i'm watching is that we have no idea what's over the horizon and that's problematic because this concerns um, a close ally of Australia, firstly, but it also concerns one of the two major parties in the United States um, is undergoing a major identity crisis, a major reformation, or, or is it? I don't know. It should it be? Um, but this is a question we've been dealing with for the last eight years is what direction does Trump take the Republican Party and what does that actually mean for um, the United States foreign policy and what does that mean for Australia's relationship with the United States? And these are all questions that we have unanswered. But that gives us more reason to be watching these candidates because any one of them could be helping steer the future of the party. These are people that have stuck by the party, have stuck by Donald Trump, and they all have different views on what the best way to go about foreign policy actually is. And so I think that's why it's important to be watching these things and to be reading things like our Republican primary presidential draggers to just slide a plug in or crowbar <laughs> one more like uh, that my colleagues at the United States Study Centre have put together and is available online. Um, 
things like that are really useful in terms of determining where the conversation is among the party. And there is a difference between these uh, candidates and especially when they're doing fun, quippy things like debates and the kind of things that they'll say. But in terms of things that the tracker points out and why it's important to watch these people is because they do have moderate opinions that harken back to an earlier era of the Republican Party and that elected representatives in the Senate and in the uh, House uh, who are making these policy decisions, who are dealing with appropriations and the National Defence Authorization Act being stuck in negotiation for the first time in Yonks, even though it's a must-pass bill. Uh, these are the people who are dealing with this kind of legislation that actually has tangible effects, not just from the presidential bully pit, but from the actual place where legislation gets done, from the place that holds the purse strings of government. Um, these people have implications for America's relationships overseas, and people like Tim Scott actually sit in the Senate um, and it's important to watch them and important to realize their position and what that might mean for the party as well as the United States relationship with us. That's a really great point, Victoria, because that's something that we need to underscore, um, which maybe goes back to one of the questions um, from, from way earlier about how the rest of the world um, might be seeing this also in the context of alliances, because even during the time of um, America first presidency, um, what we saw is a kind of bifurcation of US foreign policy where the president would basically um, act uh, uh, sort of like a wounded bear on Twitter and, and always react to things. Um, but it's actually Congress that a lot of time, even uh, with the Republican majority that uh, tried to slow him uh, down or, or actually overturn um, things that he was proposing, right? Um, so this is something that we really have to keep in mind still, given that we are not anywhere uh, near yet uh, January 20th of uh, 2025, and we don't know who that person is going to be. So to kind of put things into perspective before we start collectively hyperventilating. Uh, <laughs> but even if we do, right, that there is that hope that um, still, uh, even, even under president, that could be more extreme on some of the matters, uh, the system of checks and balances work, works in a way that uh, on foreign policy matters at least tended to so far on foreign policy, uh, either work on a, on a sort of bipartisan consensus, especially China, but even on some of these matters of alliances, right, where the um, uh, Congress actually put it in into the National uh, Defense Authorization Bill that a president could not unilaterally pull out of NATO. Right? This was uh, done during the, the Trump uh, administration. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> On that note, yeah. that's a very happy note. Um, um, sorry. Yes, and maybe... Did I lose my train of thought? It was the, what should we look for? Yes, this is one thing that we should look for. What I always tell my students, don't follow the, so there is one thing that we could do. It is not to focus on daily polls and these sort of daily horse races, right? Oh, today, you know, like tomorrow, like Maswami is surging, he's in the lead, he has it in the back, right? Um, these are stocks and we need to take a look at them low and trend lines, right? So if there's one thing you want to do, and if you want to tune out of uh, watching the debates, don't tune out of USSC, all things <laughs> tracker and everything that <laughs> our amazing people are doing. But uh, if there's one thing that uh, you should do is not get upset 
and obsessed uh, with uh, uh, these daily uh, sort of horse races because uh, it would become very addictive to do that, but it doesn't tell us much. So uh, flows rather than stops. Uh, one point does not make a trend line. Excellent. Um, last question for the three of you before we open up to the audience. Um, who do you think, or what number do you think will be left on Super Tuesday uh, in March when you know all the states, so many states vote and it really makes or breaks candidates? Or who do you see as the remaining, let's say two or three in the last days of the primaries? You know, we saw in, in 2016, Bernie really, if there's any historical uh, parallel to um, the closest or, or historical lesson, it's uh, for DeSantis's team to see a comeback victory, it was Bernie. Bernie was super close to winning uh, against Hillary in 2016, and he really stuck it out to the end. Do you see, is, is it just a foregone conclusion that's only DeSantis, or do you see a few candidates that you expect to be remaining in, in the last days of the uh, primary? Primaries. So we Dave and work our way down again. I I think the early contests are going. They're going to involve um, these less likely candidates spending incredible amounts of money to try to keep themselves relevant and running out of it very quickly. So Iowa, New Hampshire. You think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think the the sheer cost of. I mean, just given how astronomically expensive these races are now. Yeah, even though someone like Scott's got a lot of money on hand, DeSantis has already burnt through a lot of his. Um, there's going to be panic spending going on, which burns through donor cash uh, very, very quickly. And I think that for that reason, um, yeah, I, I don't think it's very likely that, that anyone uh, is, is going to make it to Super Tuesday. I might be wrong. But I think that DeSantis is at Super Tuesday? DeSantis's donors are already reevaluating mm. him. Um, because he has the large donors, but not the small donors yes, that keep it going. Yeah, right? and I think he has just turned out to be not the candidate that they thought that he was going to be. And no. without making any personal slight against DeSantis, there's a long history of phenomenally popular governors getting into a national race and the rest of the country takes a look at them and isn't interested. Mm. Uh, you know, for every Bill Clinton, there's a million Scott Walkers. Mm. Um, and that at the at the moment, um, I mean, DeSantis doesn't really have the skills that you expect of a candidate. He doesn't have the kind of magic with large numbers that someone like Trump or Obama had. He doesn't have the kind of gravitas um, that and trust that someone like Biden had. He doesn't have the interpersonal skills that someone like Clinton had. Not many candidates have all of those things. Um, in fact, very few of them have all three, but really good ones have at least two and candidates who have a chance have at least one. And he hasn't shown any of them. And I, I think that, yeah, there may be donors either throwing their money behind someone else or actually getting out of the race um, altogether. I think that, and yeah, especially the way that DeSantis has been spending his money in the delightful ways that uh, Victoria... <laughs> Mentioned, you know, flying on a private jet so that he doesn't have to talk to or look at anyone. Um, yeah. Man of the people. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pay, paying door knockers because, you know, it, it's hard to persuade that's people. But it's public works, right? Uh, that's, yeah, yeah. That's Keynesian. Yeah, so, <laughs> um, so I, I think he's in trouble. 
Um, Ramaswamy made this big point of saying, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not bought or sold by anyone. Once again, following, uh, you know, this was Trump's, always Trump's claim. I've got so much money that I don't need these donors. But of course, Trump did need uh, donors and he really needs them now to pay his legal bills. That is basically where all of the donations to Trump are going at the moment. Um, if, if Ramaswamy does stay around, he's going to need uh, donors as well. I don't know if he's self-funded to this point, but um, even for someone as wealthy as he is, the kinds of costs that are now involved in just being involved in a contest like Iowa or New Hampshire will mean that he will, um, he will need donors. We heard David's not, uh, not thinking that DeSantis is a good shot. Thoughts on who's, who are the last few to take on Trump? I'll take on the easy... Oh, I was going to say the easy pick of all these candidates to survive until Super Tuesday is Trump, um, but that would be a very dissatisfying answer for all of you here. Um, if I was to try and indulge, I don't want to make a prediction because we all know from lessons from 2016 that that's not a good thing to do if you're an analyst. Um, so I won't make a prediction. So between friends... To give you all a satisfying answer, wherever the camera is, between friends, um, I would imagine that maybe Nikki Haley might have a better chance than I would have thought before this morning. Mm. Um, she's polling pretty poorly in Iowa, but she's visited it the most amount of times. And I think of all the non-Trump candidates today, including the candidates who are not Trump, but act a lot like Trump, I found her message most coherent in that she came out very strongly saying... Uh, you know, promoting her military background, her credentials as a former governor, her credentials as part of the Trump administration. She towed the line very carefully between criticizing Trump as unelectable in the general election, as well as, um, you know, still saying that she would support a, a candidate who has a criminal conviction. So she really towed the line quite carefully. Um, and, you know, she is yet to see a bump in the polls, especially in those early states like Iowa and New Hampshire. But I saw, you know, an anecdotal pool of people uh, from Iowa that they brought together and they said, you know, who of you are considering alternative candidates? And Ramaswamy won among those who are considering alternative candidates. But Nikki Haley, surprisingly, also garnered quite a lot of support. And a lot of what we're talking about when we're talking about rehabilitating the Republican Party is that someone needs to appeal to suburban women, um, because that is a cohort of people that the Democrats really swooped up and, and have taken. And we saw that again in 2022 in the midterm elections. And so she's persuadable in that sense, in that she is uh, a woman who can appeal to uh, suburban women. Whether that means she actually makes it to Super Tuesday, I don't know. But if you wanted an answer of someone to keep an eye on and someone that surprised me today, I would say Nikki Haley. I'll go for the other South Carolina, Carolinian um, and maybe say Tim Scott would be a surprise um, just because there's, as I said, a lot of money and he isn't saying a lot yet. So he's not incriminating himself <laughs> yet, uh, which might be part of the strategy. And he often gets mentioned and also from these various Republican operatives that have, you know, uh, been sort of swirling around. They, they say that um, he might be one from that side, again, of the more morning in America type um, but I would agree, uh, Haley definitely is positioning herself as the voice for uh, the independents mm. uh, in the general election. But that's obviously still quite a way to go. One of the things I was looking at, uh, was thinking, looking at this debate, is Haley would be the favourite of people who will never actually vote for the mm -hmm. Republican yeah. mm -hmm. um, after, after this debate. 
Um, yeah, but I think that you are both correct. Thank you, David. Yeah, I'm pretty <laughs> sure. Like, I, I think, yeah, yeah, even though I'm predicting nobody yeah. will make it. If, if, if we anyone... to, yeah, yeah, that would be my second pick. But also, we can all uh, you know, rewind to this in um, six, seven months' time and then see how wrong we were. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's interesting. You, you named a, a black man, you named a Illinois woman, and um, we, we all heard after uh, 2008. The, uh, the Republicans did an autopsy of why why did they did so poorly, and, they, and sort of the uh, conclusion of that was that they should embrace diversity, and they should mm -hmm. embrace women, urban women. The binders full of women that Mitt Romney had. Yeah, no, and I, sorry, I misspoke. It was 2012, not 2008. 2012 autopsy. Excuse me. Um, and uh, yeah, so is this the election where they finally embrace embrace that as a question, but. I'd, I've asked a lot, so I want to ask the audience, if you could, when you get the microphone, please make it a question, not a lecture, and also just tell us where you're coming from in your name. Thank you. And we'll start up here. Sorry, we have a mic right behind you. Thank you. Uh, my name is Ed Caveras. Uh, I'm a retired economist. Other than the likelihood of Trump dying and the chance to promote to sell, to say, get a higher profile, so maybe in the future you get something. I can't understand why they bother. <laughs> why they bother why, running why, for yeah, office? People with such low percentage probability, why do they do this? Um, yeah, I think Ben Carson might have an answer for you and a number of others. Um, but I'll, anyone want to take this? Yeah, look, I wonder this every time. And <laughs> um, and, you know, this is, as a social scientist, you look at this and you try to come up with some mental model to explain it and you can't, but they keep doing it. So there's, um, you know, there's, there is something in the mind of an ambitious politician that is a bit different from the, you know, from the rest of us. And maybe some of them feel like they're building something for the future. So when I was looking at Ramaswamy today, I was thinking, the 2028 JD Vance versus Vivek Ramaswamy debate is uh, is going to be very painful to watch. Um, you know, but yeah, some of them though, like I don't think Asa Hutchinson's setting himself up for a uh, yeah for a future run. So I think it's an excellent question, and it goes into the the impenetrable mind of these um, very ambitious politicians, many of whom have already achieved a lot. Um, you know, to become the governor of a state, even North Dakota, because if North Dakota were to secede from the United States, it would have the world's third largest nuclear weapons arsenal. Uh, so it's a significant state to be, um, you know, to be governor of. And yeah, there's, but, but whereas you might think from the outside, well, a reasonable person would say, that's pretty good. I'm pretty happy with my lot. This is not how these people think. <laughs> um, that's all I can say. Chris Christie's second attempt at yeah, the yeah. presidency. Biden took three attempts before he became president of Brazil. Mm, yes. And the other point here, I think, which is important, um, six out of eight on that stage are or were governors, right? So this sort of line of, oh, I've done it, I have been the executive in my state, how hard can it be, you know, to add <laughs> another 49, right? Um, so there is this 
I think, and this is for, I think, first time really that we have such a prevalence of, of governors, not the governors weren't uh, elected to president, but also is sort of uh, almost a shoe in to, to get into the White House uh, once you yeah, um, have, have uh, uh, secured the ticket. But um, it's, it's um, maybe part of the answer here because they really think that they have that executive experience and they can just sort of transfer that uh, uh, set of skills on, on the national. It's funny you say that because uh, there's a famous line in the Senate is what does every senator see when they look in the mirror? The next US president. And we only have one, yeah. but I think that's maybe why we're also not hearing anything from Mitch McConnell. I think from, for the most part, Senate Republicans- He's capable of speech. Exactly. There you go. But oh, for the most part- A lot of uh, Senate Republicans are outside of Tim Scott their head down and, and not saying all that much, you know, except for maybe one fun Alabama senator. Um, another question. So if Mike is right here, so we'll start. Um, maybe the lady. Sorry, I didn't see your hand up. I just saw three hands. Uh, my name's Ashley Brunson. I'm coming from the state of Georgia. I want to know uh, when Donald Trump has his um, photograph taken in the next 12 or 18 hours, why would or why would not the criminal trial in um, Atlanta uh, affect the race among the Republicans? I can start. Um, I think whether or not it affects the race will be interesting. I think what sets this case apart from the other three indictments is that Trump is not being tried alone and he's being tried with 18 other defendants. Rudy, Rudy Giuliani checked himself into Georgia today and took a mugshot. Uh, Trump is surely subjected to the same mugshot in your state tomorrow, um, which I'm also looking forward to seeing because he has been spared that treatment um, from others. And these uh, indictments are about proving that no one is above the law, including the president of the United States. I think how I doubt that these indictments are going to change the nature of these of the race in that I think people's opinions of Trump are very baked in. The fact that, and I said it at the top, 71% of primary Republican voters do not think that Trump has committed any serious crimes. I don't think that number is going anywhere anytime soon. But I do think what makes this particular Georgia case so interesting is that they have called for a speedy trial and that he is being tried on racketeering charges as part of a quote-unquote, according to Fanny Willis, who's the district attorney on the case, a criminal enterprise. Um, he is one of 18 here, and that leads to a whole lot of different variables in terms of how people um, play themselves off each other in this criminal enterprise in order to get more favorable treatment. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I can continue, but do you have? I mean, this has been pegged as the one that is least likely to go to trial before the election, just because it's so big and so complicated. Uh, having said that, one of the co-defendants, Kenneth Chesbrough, today his lawyers filed a motion demanding a speedy trial. Mm. So demanding a trial beginning on November 19th. And once again, we're, we're just in complete chaos land here. Apparently, uh, Fanny Willis is prepared for this uh, possibility of having to go to court as soon as possible. But I'm sure that the other defendants are going to be filing motions asking for the opposite. Uh, and so I've got no idea um, how this is going to play out. I still think that it's very unlikely that it will go to trial before um, the election. But at the same time, this might be the one of all of them 
that I, I doubt that it would have changed a lot of people's minds, but if there was anyone that was going to erode Trump's support slightly, I think it might be this one because mm -hmm. it didn't come from the federal government. Uh, the, it was so detailed. There were so many different charges. Um, but yeah, so many different defendants. I mean, this really looked like a proper, not to say that the other uh, prosecutions are improper, but, you know, th this one looked like people's expectations of what a criminal prosecution uh, or a criminal investigation is supposed to look like. And it's been widely pointed out that given how evenly balanced everything seems to be, there doesn't need to be a mass loss of support from Donald Trump. One or two percent of people changing their minds about Donald Trump could make it nearly, uh, well, could could make it a lot more difficult for him to uh, to to get elected. And In given, yeah, given some of the poll numbers that we've seen, even though when you look at Trump and Biden head to head, it's very very close, typically about forty three percent to forty three percent. There was a poll from AP Nork saying um, uh, that 63% of Americans say they probably or definitely wouldn't vote for Donald Trump, and that's 52% in the definitely camp. Biden wasn't much better. He was 48% uh, in the definitely, uh, definitely not camp. But um, I, I think that this, uh, the, certainly the Georgia indictment, I think, is the one that hurts him the most mm. um, of of all of it, it has definitely been sort of in escalating uh, level of seriousness. The, the first one really only seemed to have the effect of forcing Republicans to defend Trump. Um, the the second That's New York, yeah, yeah. The the second one was uh, dismissed as an overdue library books scenario, which uh, seemed to convince a lot of people. Um, the third one, obviously very serious, but Republicans were able to paint it as this is Biden going directly after one of his opponents. This one is this fourth one is different, and I think that the the responses to it have been um, uh, different as well. So even though I don't think the trial will happen before the election, I think this is the one that is most likely just to hurt him at the margins in ways that could really. Sorry, can I, can I add one more thing about the Georgia case specifically? I think Georgia points to how there can be attitudinal shifts towards Trump. In that Trump lost Georgia by forty thousand ish votes. Then the next time Georgia got to vote on Trump in, in essence, I suppose it was the 2022 midterms, and it was Trump in essence versus Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, who got re-elected by a greater margin than he did in the first instance. In fact, in Fulton County, where this case is being prosecuted, he got re-elected with 80.2% of the vote, which is unprecedented considering Georgia is now considered a blue state. Um, Purple, purple, we'll go purple. But, so, but Fulton, Fulton County is a very blue area. It's a very blue area, yeah, yeah. and Fulton County voted for Brian Kemp with 80%. So mm. it shows that there can people's, as much as we talk about Teflon Don and none of these scandals stick and his supporters are rusted on if we want to keep going with pan analogies, um, <laughs> which are very muddled, um, you know, yeah, as much as we want to say that those things exist, I think Georgia is an example that attitudes can shift. Um, and maybe they shift one state at a time. But, you know, the treatment of Brad Raffensperger and Brian Kemp in Georgia um, show that uh, Trump is less and less popular in that state and these indictments could have an effect. Maybe, yeah, maybe just one quick point. Um, there are so many things going on around Donald Trump with the, these indictments that I fear it might be a bit, in terms of analogies, mm -hmm. a bit like 2016. There were just so many scandals 
And then what Donald Trump always does is deflect, deny, right? In terms of these trials, he will definitely petition for delay and, and all the rest. And on the Democrats' side, there is Hunter Biden that you can always point to. And actually, uh, just recently, Kevin McCarthy said that uh, the House might actually uh, put up for vote um, articles of impeachment uh, of President Biden, right, over Hunter Biden. And I worry if this becomes, again, one of these false equivalizing sort of situations where Hunter Biden becomes Hillary's emails, right? And Trump, again, just because of the attention span, not that I'm dismissing, I think David made a great case uh, as to how, how this could hurt uh, down the line, but I just worry that uh, with Trump, it's just so hard to keep track of all this and to actually attach some weight as to the gravity of these things, right? Um, and again, we have to take into consideration that we basically have two separate media ecosystems. So I'm pretty sure that Fox News or Fox Business won't be, you know, making uh, these sort of uh, uh, broad coverages of what it is that RICO means in the context of <laughs> Georgia's case and, and all that. So um, maybe, yeah, just just that uh, a little intervention there. Thank you. Um, another question we had here in the front. Yeah. Hi, my name's Marla Minow. I'm from Democrats Abroad Australia. And I'm wondering, I heard mention on the way here that Mike Pence um, represented himself in the spin room mm -hmm. after the debates tonight. And I'm wondering what anybody's thoughts are as to why. Well, if you have to spin yourself, that means that you probably think that you didn't have that awesome of a night. Um, even though according to uh, at least what I saw in the aggregates, um, in terms of the total minutes that uh, they had, Mike Pence and Vivek Ramaswamy had uh, the, the highest number um, uh, that actually Pence by a minute, I think more he spoke than Ramaswamy. Um, but um, I think Pence has a problem, uh, obviously, uh, which, I mean, if it was only one, that would be a luxury, but um, there are several of them, um, but uh, uh, given his proximity to Trump and yet again, his uh, desperate try to, to peel himself off and yet to use Trump for everything that we heard before as uh, him as a steady pair of hands, someone comes with experience, he walks this very weird sort of line where, um, of course, all of this experience comes from the fact that he was associated to the man that uh, he now tries to disown, right? And, and that's a very hard kind of circle to square, I think. And um, going into the spin room, I think that it is just, again, another uh, sort of indicator of how uh, the, the campaign and, and himself are, are uncomfortable, basically, as to where they are. Um, and certainly where, you know, they are not uh, in the top three, they are uh, falling behind in some of these early states. So all of this, and again, some of the focus groups that uh, were showed, I, I saw some of the coverage, right? Uh, there was a lot of saying that uh, people, when they heard Pence speak, they started booing. Uh, so, you know, uh, not, not a great uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of position to be in. That, that's what I would say in terms of, yeah, why, why he went there. Yeah, it's fascinating on, on Mike Pence, how, like you said, he's navigating that line. When they asked, would you endorse a convicted felon for president? He still raised his hand. So still willing to endorse Trump. It's the hand a, raising. 
That's I, was, it's the you, tactic. You know, maybe this is too far in the weeds. He was the last racist. <laughs> There's less some hesitation there. Um, thoughts on on Pence? Unless we can move to the next well, question. Well, he doesn't have many high-profile allies. Yeah. And yeah. maybe he was just saving money. Seems like he was seeking those high-profile Midwestern thrift that he showed as the governor of Indiana yeah. that he's so proud of. But it seemed like tonight he was he was sort of looking for some friends, saying, "Can everyone here disagree that I did the right thing on on Gen Six? That was, that was an interesting uh, <laughs> question <laughs> that he asked of his, yeah. his co. Uh, debaters um mm -hmm. any questions in the audience we have one here hi anthony and sorry this is just the last one susan anthony goffin from i work for state government and masters of public policy here uh between friends like you said if this is trump's show who's he picking as vp from the lot excellent question Good final question all right should we start from here because we've been starting yeah. over there all night if it's trump's show who does he by the way, nice to meet you, Anthony. Uh, Anthony is a student of mine, but uh, uh, we just met now. <laughs> uh, that's right, in white pool. This is a capstone project by research, so not in a class, so that's fine. Uh, we only saw each other on Zoom, so thank you for introducing yourself. Um, who does he pick? So in 2016, mm -hmm. We, we know why I chose Pence. You need the evangelical vote. Yes. You need the Midwest. Made sense. What, 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 what's I, I mean, I have no idea, but I would say someone who definitely isn't on that stage. I don't think it's going to be someone like Vivek Ramaswamy. It could be someone a bit crazy like Carrie Lake or someone like that, you know? So someone who could appeal maybe to women, someone who probably talks fast, so you kind of can't process what like this crazy person is about, but you know, they're very energetic and um, definitely, you know, someone who is uh, less of a, of a kind of a risk factor on the actuarial uh, mm. sort of calculations. So I would say probably someone like that. Um, uh, and again, not not uh, any of these uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, movers on the on on the to the throne of of, of MAGA or America first. That would be my sort of pick. Yeah, I think Garana's well. The way she approached the question was how I was going to do it, which was by process of elimination. I don't think it's going to be DeSantis, considering you know the DeSantis bingo that came out before this and the kind of you know attacks Trump has been levying on. DeSantis, even though once he, you know, turned out very strongly to help him win Florida in the first instance in 2018. Um, and then I was kind of going down the line and I thought, well, could it be Nikki Haley? Um, you know, she'd have the female vote, she'd have, you know, potentially the immigrant vote, like, you know, there could be a bit of tactic in that. But I don't think so, because one of the ways that the Republican Party is trying to, or Republican primary voters are trying to rail support for the party at the general election is to point out that Biden might die. And in that instance, Kamala Harris becomes president and people are very, very concerned about that. Um, so I don't know if using her like selling points in the Democrat party, being that she's a woman and she's a woman of color, whether that would work well in the Trump-like instance. So I agree. I think it, it's likely to be someone who is appealing to those minorities that have been isolated by the Republican party in recent times. Carrie Lake is actually a, a great pick in terms of, you know, she ran for Arizona governor last year and she didn't succeed, but the media attention she got in the lead up was people called her Trump in address. And then when she lost the 2022 midterm election, she took it to court over and over and disputed and said that there was fraud. Um, and so, you know, if he wants someone that seems a lot like him, um, Carrie Lake would be very good. And I think Trump is looking for someone who's going to echo 
his positions and you know reinforce his positions, not necessarily challenge him. And at this point, uh, a lot of those candidates on the debate stage are there to challenge Trump. So I don't think he wants to be challenged, and I think that means he's going to be looking elsewhere. Mm, yeah, certainly, you know, he chose Pence because of Pence's connections to evangelicals. He no longer needs an ambassador to evangelicals. He is more popular with evangelicals than any politician has, uh, has ever been. Um, I think he doesn't want anybody who's potentially going to upstage him. So that rules out Ramaswamy. Uh, he's been very friendly, notably friendly with uh, Ramaswamy. I think he's the only candidate he's shaken hands with, uh, which shows that he doesn't see him as a threat uh, of any kind. So, uh, but I don't think he would, yeah, put Ramaswamy. Um, I don't think we can rule out Marjorie Taylor Greene, who yeah. has clearly been auditioning for the job yeah. and um, has been doing it on the basis of I will be more loyal uh, to you than anybody else. And we saw in January 2021 what Trump is looking for in a vice president. It's going to be someone who will help him to break the law. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be someone without Pence's minimal vestigial concerns with the constitution <laughs> and uh and norms and, uh, yeah it's the, the two obvious candidates are Kari lake although she lost which is not that's something that trump uh but it's good for trump because yeah, he yeah. doesn't want a winner right that's, 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 yeah. yeah yeah and uh and and marjorie taylor green um yeah, those I would say are the two most likely, but you heard it here first. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but who knows? And we also know that Trump does not listen to advice about electability. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, if there's if there's one takeaway, I think all three of you listed women. And I think that's one thing to, to watch that we can look for in the VP. Okay, with that, we're ending um at the exact 7:30 mark. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Again, please join us at your team. Um, and um, we look forward to more events with you over the course of the year. And thank you again to my excellent support staff, including Janine Pinto.